This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but rarely do successful people get from point A to point B taking the most direct route. Host Jeffrey Klein speaks to a diverse mix of people to explore their story of success and the dots connected along the way. Thank you for listening. Here's your host, Jeffrey. This episode is all about listening to your mother, well, or my mother, uh, as I have a great conversation with my mother, Emmy Miller, an amazing coach who understands that story creates an environment for context and can provide a metaphor in business. Now, she does understand also that not everyone is open to coaching. You really have to be willing to be uncomfortable and be vulnerable, and that the best leaders are in fact vulnerable and ask questions instead of always having the answers. Finally, she really uh, embraces the need for cultural understanding of people's different beliefs so that you can facilitate a better communication between different people. Thanks so much and enjoy. My guest today is Emmy Miller, co-founder and president of Liberty Business Strategies, a woman-owned boutique consulting firm that incorporates the best practices of human resources. Emmy has over 40 years experience in executive coaching, change and transition management, strategic planning, leadership development, and organizational effectiveness. Emmy's work spans across many industries and in various sized companies, just to name a few of her clients over the years, GlaxoSmithKline, Bala Consulting Engineers, legal firm Cooley, Quaker Houghton, Pro Painters, Fast Signs, Planned Parenthood, and the International Monetary Fund, to name but a few. Her work focused on achieving tangible business results and creating lasting impact in her clients' organizations. Known for her direct, constructive feedback and insight, she holds her clients accountable for making change. She has served on the National Board of the Human Resources, People, and Strategy and the Forum of Executive Women, as well as being a board member of the Broad Street Ministry. Emmy is a certified coach by the International Coaching Federation. Emmy and her husband, Avi, enjoy spending time with their 10 grandchildren and their dog, Poochie, and most days she finds herself finds a way to a cappuccino, something she says she cannot live without. For me, all these amazing accolades pale in comparison to her role in shaping her three grown sons, of which I am honored to be one of them. Please welcome Emmy. Thanks, Jeffrey. That was lovely. Well, you are lovely, so that should make sense. Now, I like to start at the beginning, so we go with where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in Heidelberg, Germany, and my dad is an electrical engineer. Well, he was, he's passed away. And my mother uh, was a homemaker, and at times she was a bookkeeper and a translator, especially when she came to America. Well, she also worked for Lippincott. I'm, I'm so familiar with her Lippincott right. years. What did she do there? She did translation. bookkeeping? Well, no, she did translation. So she could translate from Russian and German and Polish. Uh, and those are pretty easy things for her to do. As someone who is not uh, particularly versed with foreign languages, I found that super impressive. <laughs> uh, so growing up, you, you were an immigrant, although you moved to the America when you were just a baby. Um, right. Did you, like a lot of people growing up, at least in my experience, kind of think, oh, when I grow up, I want to be this. 
Did you have any kind of ideas about what you want to do when you were growing up? You know, I don't remember. Uh, I just remember creating plays and entertaining kids. And then as I got older, since my dad was an engineer, I grew up loving math. And so I majored in that in college and I figured I'd do something in that vein. But you didn't. We'll get to that in a bit. Um, and what? so your dad was an engineer. It sounds like he may have been one of your role models. Was there anyone else who kind of was a role model growing up in terms of you, you seeing a path to something you might want to do? I would say I had different role models for different things. So I had a role model for parenting for a friend of mine who was 15 years older than I was and had three kids. I had a different role model. Pardon me? I should thank her for your- You uh, should, she's still around, she's still a good friend. (laughs) Uh, And I had a different role model uh, for uh, literature in terms of, I grew up with a mother demanding that I read international literature. So as most parents wouldn't let their kids read Nabokov, my mother wanted me to read Nabokov because he was a great Russian author and I had to read Tolstoy. So um, yeah, I had a very varied, to a degree, a very un-American childhood. Well, one thing that uh, I think is universal from my perspective is the, the ability to tell stories. And so you talk about these authors. Is there anyone who you grew up with who were particularly good at telling stories? I heard stories, and this probably reflects how old I am, but I, I remember storytelling and being compelled by them on the radio. They used to tell stories. In fact, I think the NPR still uh, reads stories on the radio, and I found that to be just fascinating. Any particular story you recall that you thought like that really kind of or, or subject matter that was interesting to you? Well, I think naturally I'm interested in immigration and people coming to the United States and adapting. And so stories about people from other countries coming here have always been interesting to me. So as someone who's not uh, a first generation immigrant, what how is your your childhood different as as it related to being from a different you know born in a different country did that play a big role it did uh first of all it played a role in how i was dressed i was dressed as a very good uh little girl who grew up in russia or poland or germany and so that's the kind of clothing my mother picked out for me it uh also played a role in terms of i was very early expected to be Uh, focused on the arts and I didn't grow up with any American uh, stories, kindergarten stories or um, those kind of things. I only really grew up with listening to fairy tales that were in Polish and Russian and um, and I think my parents home was very different than any of the homes around us in terms of how it was decorated, uh, how we celebrated things. So my parents didn't really assimilate all that well and didn't feel the need to assimilate. They embraced the country, but they, they were very much of the tradition of where they came from. And did that, did, so was your response to that to embrace the same perspective or did you find yourself kind of rebelling against that and wanting to assimilate more? Oh, definitely wanting to assimilate more. I embrace it by rebelling. I was quite a rebellious child. 
Oh, much so to I... my parents' dismay, because again, that was not what good European kids would do. Well, what, give me, give us an example of one of your rebellious actions. Well, a mild one was that my mother wanted me to wear braids and a big bow in my hair, and I went off one day and got my hair cut. Didn't you also color your hair at one point? Not until I was much, much, much older. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about, uh, you know, there's an impression, I think, about immigrants and about um, Europeans, the work ethic that came to America. Did, did you... Were you compelled to find a job and what was kind of your first paying job? Well, I was compelled to find a job, but it was more because going back to rebellion, I wanted independence. And so I had a great job as a bank teller for Philadelphia Society, PSFS. Um, I forget mm -hmm. what the F stood for, for savings. Uh, and that was an interesting job as a teller. And I sold uh, clothing at a boutique store, but I always wanted to make my own money and be independent. And, you know, you talked about the your interest in the arts and literature, as well as your interest in math. And it seems like you had this kind of duality. How did you decide to kind of pursue, you know, not a math career, you know, or based on math, but more of a personal um, and finding to, you know, that how did coaching kind of come as part of what you ended up doing? Well, Again, it was, I picked math because it was easy for me and I had a father who loved it. I mean, I used to play with a slide rule, which they don't use anymore. And, uh, but I also loved art and art history. And so I thought about becoming an art historian, but my drive to be financially independent felt that I had to go into business. And that's what drove me into business. In terms of coaching, that was an accident. I was doing some teamwork for a client in information technology, since I knew that space. And they asked me to coach the CIO, Chief Information Officer. <clears throat> and um, it was something I hadn't thought about. There wasn't a lot of literature. This is back in 1990. And it turned out to be a really wonderful assignment. Wonderful meaning that the goals that they set out for this CIO were met and he really flourished in his job. And so that really kicked in this passion for helping others. I also found out that children who go through and are immigrants tend to find, particularly immigrants from the Holocaust era, tend to go into helping roles. And I guess I fit that. Uh, so where's, you know, you've, you've done a lot of travel um, and you've worked with lots of different kinds of companies. Uh, what's the most kind of surprising place you found yourself, whether it's a location or engaging with a particular person through your kind of experience? Well, I have traveled a lot. I think the most, it's not so much the most surprising, but traveling the train, which I do, well, I used to do before COVID to New York and Washington every week. I met incredible people who were really, um, very much wanting to do some things in their life and particularly in things for other people. And I think that's been the most surprising and delightful experience I had. In fact, one of my clients was somebody I met on the train and struck up a conversation. He had just been suggested by his company that he hire a coach. And by the time we got off the train, I was hired. <laughs> ah, the train. 
Um, well, and I know just just to me, what when I think about some of the places you've gone as a result, you know, or or clients you've had in far flung places. I mean, you know, you go to Washington D.C. a lot, but you've also had clients in the Middle East and clients in Europe, and um, there's a whole cultural perspective. I think because you that you probably have some more ease with than maybe people who are, you know, typical Americans. Um, how has kind of culture played into how you coach people from other places? Well, it's very interesting you ask that question because I, I coaching, I coach for several multilateral organizations. You mentioned the IMF. I also do the World Bank and uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, which is Lat Latino Hispanic area. And what's interesting to me is even in places like that, where there's multiple cultures. So you can have somebody who's in India and managing somebody from France being managed by somebody from German, Germany. And understanding what part of the behaviors culturally influence is very helpful in terms of helping clients manage people. And in terms of managing people, because this is something I talk about in terms of communication, um, do you think that, you know, being able to communicate or tell an effective story is a skill that you can develop or is it something that you, you either innately have or you don't? I think most skills, including storytelling, can be developed. I think that storytelling is underrated. And I agree with that. <laughs> no, I really do. And in fact, sometimes when I try to shift clients, when I work with clients who are trying to communicate something, and many of them have PhDs or MDs or other advanced degrees, and they are wanting to go to the technical part of the presentation. I bring them back to the story, the concept of a story, and remind them that some of the most powerful and influential things have been done because of story. So if you look at the, um, if you look in Rome at some of the beautiful things Michelangelo did, that was telling a story. If you look at a powerful message, I was in India and looking at uh, the pathway that Gandhi took, it made it more powerful because we knew about the story. And so it creates an environment and a context for people and sometimes a metaphor for people that they can relate to much quicker than if they were just given a chart of numbers. Well. Wow. That is preaching to the choir because that I, I try and share that message of the need for story over information. And not that information isn't important because clearly there are times where you need to uh, express it. But I believe that if you do it in a narrative form, there's science behind the fact of how it connects with people, you know, in terms of them understanding what you're talking about and remembering it, which is what we're trying to do in business. Um, in terms of coaching, do you think anyone can benefit from having a, a professional coach? Well, that's like asking me, can anyone benefit from learning? <laughs> some people do, and some people obviously don't. Uh, but it's interesting that in the last couple of years, the concept of coaching has become much more accepted. So you have people like Gates, you have people like Antal Wally talking about the value of having a coach. Now, the, that's part one the coaching relationship, but the important part of it is for what and how will it be different? So it's always the so what, then what question that I ask clients and companies. 
And sometimes for certain things, a coach is not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And what about the, the, is everyone coachable? Which is a different question. Not everyone. Uh, People who are closed and, and really do not want to take advice are not coachable. You want someone that is open to learning and open to being uncomfortable to grow. And so you've worked with a lot of uh, high powered, you know, C- C-suite level people. Do you right. find on average, I mean, when you're, you have resistance from the, the, the kind of more, there's, I think, a perception of, you know, CEOs and, and people in, in, you know, leadership roles are not always people who want to have advice from others. And, and I would think that there's those that I would call, you know, open and they're probably more successful leaders and than the ones that don't. Do you find that more challenging to, to, to have people who are used to giving out orders as, and giving out advice and telling people what to do as opposed to being open to listening to someone else? Well, I think that, I think there's part of that. I think that someone who's a CEO or on the C-suite is used to having the answers. And one of the things that they, we work on is really, that's something that you need to have at a lower level, at a supervisory level. By the time you get to be a CEO or in that C-suite, the power you have is is in the type of questions and being open to listening to other points of view and and being vulnerable. And that's something that feels counterintuitive to some people, but when they practice it and look at it, they find that it's very, very powerful for them. What do you find is the biggest challenge in being a coach or in coaching someone? Well, you have to have a fast start because they want to get going. And so the concept of going slow to go fast is something that you want to present because no one's going to be a cookie cutter leader. Everyone's going to be the best leader they can be for who they are. And so there has to be a short period of time where you have to get to know them and you also have to understand the culture of the organization that they want to be successful in. And, and so is the challenge that people are impatient? They're impatient, yes. And also, depending on where they are, um, sometimes it can be tough because one of the things that you're doing is you're asking them to look at long-held beliefs to see if it really they continue to support them or they don't. What do you find on the flip side? What do you find the most rewarding part about being a coach? Oh, so many things. I mean, I love it. And and the reason is because you watch somebody really open up. There's a woman from MIT wrote a book called The Third Opinion. You know, the only reason I know I'm successful is if that person I'm coaching meets their goals, not my goals. And so watching that happen is just the most satisfying thing I can imagine. And how do you define success? And this can be, it's meant to be open-ended. So you could call it success in life or success in coaching, but how would, if someone said to you, how do you define success? How would you respond? I don't define success. The person I'm working with defines success. The organization defines success. And I'm there to 
facilitate that as a thinking partner, as an accountability partner. Well, let me throw it back to how do you define success for yourself outside the coaching in, in life? Well, I have been very fortunate. As you mentioned, I have three kids. And for me, one of the things that was always important to me was to see my kids be successful and hopefully more successful than I am uh, and have wonderful lives. And that's always been my North Star. I mean, I love my work, as you know, being my son. I'm passionate about it. But the most important thing to me is the kids and, and, and their children. Oh. I'll quickly move on to what, and maybe it's related, you know, what inspires you? What inspires me is the chance to really um, feel that I'm making a difference for a broad range of people or an organization. Because when you coach at the top, it has a cascading effect. So if someone is more empathetic, if someone is more successful aligning their team, someone's faster in getting a drug to market like we're watching now, that is success. And if I can play a role in that, then I feel very gratified about that. What one piece of advice would you have given to your 21-year-old self? Well, that's a, that was, that's a tough question. I think <clears throat> being confident and being open to know that you don't know everything. And what do you, what's kind of next in the trend of kind of professional development or coaching? What do you see is, you said in the last couple of years, it's become more, you know, uh, accepted that people, that the power of coaching. Where do you think things are going from here? Well, it's a very exciting time for coaching. For one thing, uh, as Thomas Friedman wrote in, in his several books ago, the world is flat and fast now. And so because of that, and, and COVID has accelerated the movement, people are really struggling. There's no right or wrong way to do things. There's no uh, list of things that you're supposed to do because things are changing all the time. And so, everything is becoming much more diverse. So the idea of cultural, having a good cultural IQ, is something we're, we're, we're promoting very heavily now because we're finding it very important, is a very exciting is to help multinational group, sometimes meeting for the first time, but they have to go and do something like develop drugs or like generate a new technology uh, or pivot to COVID and helping them become a powerful team together. And so understanding where they come from, understanding the cultural biases. In fact, there was a physicist, and so this my, I minored in physics, talked about the fact that he's, he just died a couple of years ago, that culture is really, the, evolving a culture is the most important thing right now in terms of helping support our future. And so having a part in that is exciting. Not only is it multi, uh, not only is it diverse by different cultures, but it's diverse by different ages. And one of the things that's so fascinating now is a lot of the baby boomers are retiring. And so how do you engage them in mentoring and talk to them about legacy and help support the upcoming young leaders? It's a great time to be a coach. 
and in terms of legacy and 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 from you've had a very fulfilling career what's kind of next for you just what i'm doing i'm having a blast really uh succession planning doing multicultural work that's really what i see as the next uh thing next areas that we're going to be challenged with and understanding technology and understanding how technology can enable communications Here we are on a Zoom call, proof in the pudding. Um, okay, so this is the part where we do nine rapid fire questions, although uh -oh. rapid fire as I intend them to be. Uh, so just kind of, you know, off, off the cuff, um, some may require a little more thought. But is it better to be a planner or a doer? It's better to be what you're good at and have somebody else compliment you. Oh, I like that answer. Um, should stories always have a happy? Should stories always have a happy ending? Stories need to be. You need to take out of a story what is important and is useful. If they have a happy ending, that's fine. If they don't, what did the person learn? What are the gifts that came out of that story? Do you have a favorite emoji? I do use emojis. And the, my favorite one is, is sending a kiss to my kids and my grandkids. <laughs> so it's more on a personal basis. That's, uh, if you had to sing a song for karaoke, and I, and I sometimes alter this question, of, you know, do you have a favorite song? Because some people don't like to sing karaoke, but what would you select as a song that moves you? Grover Washington was a wonderful musician that my children and I knew growing up. And he did the two of us with Bill Winters. And I think that's that's one of the, the, the songs that I find very soothing. Mm, love that song. Uh, do you have a favorite social media platform? No, I use LinkedIn mostly because I use the social media primarily for business. Mm -hmm. Can you name, and I know this, this is gonna be a tough question because I know how much you like to read books, but can you name a book that left a lasting impression on you? Name one book. I know there are many. I know that's tough. How about two? Okay, I'll give you two. Well, one is The Night by Elie Wiesel, which is a very powerful book, uh, which really talked about how you, how his role was in taking care of someone who was an arch enemy and how they both learned about the humanness of each other. And the other one for business was the seminal book by David, um, Peter Drucker, sorry, who was the, I think it's called The Executive or The Competent Executive. We'll get, we'll put it in the show notes, make sure we get the right one. Um, can you name one of your, now I love movies, so can you name one of your favorite movies? You know, I, I'm not as big a movie goer as I used to be. And I think what I can think of as parts of movies, like The King and I, I know that might strike you as odd, but it, ha it was about Thailand. And it was fascinating to me about how someone acclimated to another culture and how the culture thrived by not putting up walls as many countries do, but opening up the place so that they can really grow. And that's how that, that became their strength. So I love that movie for that reason. Love that. What's one thing you can't live without? 
air. And I'm going to say other other than cappuccino because that was something <laughs> you mentioned. That is something I really like to have. There's nothing I can't live without except air. Okay. <laughs> Very practical answer. Uh, if you could be credited with inventing something, what would it be and why? Well, I think if I were to invent something, it would have to be something that would help other people. And I can't, and right now it would be something that would help people live well together and collaborate. That's the end of the questions there. So you've you've successfully you know navigated the nine sure. right fire questions. Um, Good, then I can have is there anything in particular yeah. you're um, anything in particular you're promoting in terms of you know you think you're you know I think you talked about cultural uh, IQ. Is there somewhere mm -hmm. people could find out information or reach out to you? What's the best way for people to kind of connect with you? Well, I, I don't think we've actually quite updated our website, but there's one person uh, that uh, we have brought on in the last year by the name of Ann Kabuzi, who's certified in an instrument that we are finding to be very powerful. So they can either contact me or, mm -hmm. well, I guess the best thing is to contact me and I will, based on what they really want to do, I'll direct them either and so to her or the best to way other people. Through through LinkedIn seems to be one powerful way. LinkedIn is fine. You. Yep. Website, I think, if it works. <laughs> Sorry. Um, this has been awesome. And, you know, I ha I speak too often, but this has been a little different than our usual conversations. Um, and I just want to say thank you for being open and sharing, you know, your perspectives and your successes. And I want to thank you for helping us connect the dots. You're most welcome. Thank you for taking your time to listen to this podcast. Please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss any future episodes. If you could also do me a favor and please leave a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate that. Remember, story matters and is the best way to connect the dots.